Zucker again. Able to play it around behind for Cullen. Touched on to Bouchard. Lobbed on for Cullen. Turning there. Coming by as Oduya. Lost. Tweet from a listener, Don. Is throwing references to your bro's national title going to be the sportscaster's version of the Dave Damaschek football podcast, Dieter Drops Back? <laughs> yes. Yeah? Yeah, probably. I think we've had, today's going to be the third podcast since that national championship has been won. Right. And there will be another mention of it as we have our first Yale alumni on the podcast since, since oh we do that's right uh, yeah and mr wertheim right so if you look at it we had the first week we had two of the champions right right then the second week we had a former college football champion you know and it was interesting to talk to him about the difference between being able to play a game to win it versus when he won the national championship uh and that's Ed Cunningham with Washington. It was actually a split national championship with Miami. And the two teams never got the chance to play. So it fit well there. And then obviously today, speaking to alum, it'll fit very well as well. So we'll see how we fit it in next week, but I'm sure. Yeah, I should try to fit something like more subtle in, like the Superman and the uh, Seinfeld, Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Like we should, I'll think of something and see if people can catch it. <laughs> yeah, so welcome to uh, Season 3, Episode 11 of the Sportscasters. It's May 7th, 2013 in Buffalo, New York. It's hot out. It's beautiful. Yep. It's a day that reminds – it'd be a great day to go down to the arena for an NHL playoff game, huh? Yeah, it's true. Park your car a little bit further. Even if you don't have tickets, go party in the plaza. Yeah, party in the plaza. Oh, all that would be so fun. Yeah, playoff hockey looks like it's fun. Yeah, it sounded like it there in the beginning clip too. Right. But uh, I'm Steve Bennett, co-host Don Russ over there. Um, like I said, season three, episode 11, last week we had a great show, season three, episode 10, Ed Cunningham, he produced undefeated, an Academy Award winning documentary, also the King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters, which has kind of got a cult following as a documentary out there, won a national championship at Washington, played college football there, played in the NFL, we had him on the show, we also had our buddy Dave Damashek on the show, and Jonah Carey Talk Baseball. Uh, this week we have some very timely guests. Greg Wyshynski is going to join us off the top to talk about the NHL playoffs. Uh, Tass Mellis is going to join us to talk about the NBA playoffs. And uh, John Wertheim from SI is going to talk to us about a bunch of different things, actually. Uh, also a little bit of the coverage that he um, directed for SI in the big Jason Collins story with him coming out of... Uh, is that so politically correct to say come out of the, out of the closet? closet or that sounds dirty to me? Comes out. I, they, I think they would just, say he come, he came out. He came out. Right. So I don't, maybe they just dropped the closet. I, part yeah, of it. I don't know why that sounds bad. <laughs> I don't know, but just felt bad when I was saying it. So I apologize if that's not. No, I don't think, I think term. that's okay. Um, and, uh, next week we're shaping up for a good show. Pablo Torre, who used to be Harvard guy. Oh, that's how we'll get it in next week. <laughs> Tease the Harvard guy about it. There you go. Right. So that's obvious. So Pablo Astori will be on. He's with ESPN, the magazine, and appears on Around the Horn from time to time. And Chris Ballard uh, is well confirmed at this point. Um, don't forget to check us out, www.sports-casters.com and at 
sports underscore casters on Twitter. Uh, let's fire it up. Let's do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, well, we're going to start off sharing number one. That's the NHL playoffs. Could easily done the NBA playoffs here. We're going to talk about both with Wyshynski and Mellis. A little bit later, we're a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger hockey fans, more tuned in there. Um, yeah, we'll let Tass do the Yeah, basketball. we'll get into the dirty, nitty-gritty with him in the basketball. But I did watch the um, a lot of the Spurs and Golden State game last night. It was really a fantastic game. Really enjoyed that. So I'm going to hope to see some more of that series. That looks like that could be. Stephen Curry is a madman, and he's going to be on a regional cover of SI this week, and Chris Ballard filed that story, so we'll talk with him about that next week. Uh, as for the NHL playoffs, uh, what stands out to you, Don? San Jose, I think. that's the. Uh, I had that series, I wouldn't say totally dead wrong. It's not like I thought Vancouver would dominate, but I did think it would be a long series that Vancouver would eventually win. And maybe it's just the type of thing, I even said it, I just don't believe in San Jose until they show me something. They always kind of get there and then fail, but they look good. They look real good. Yeah, it's the battle of the perennial playoff disappointment versus the perennial playoff disappointment, right? I mean, either they look good or Vancouver just looks really bad. And Vancouver's going to switch goalies again tonight. They're going to go to Crawford Let's see if they can get a spark there. Piazza's mixing things up in the media, so there's a little desperation there. Uh, Chicago's looked really good despite losing that overtime game in Minnesota. Who might get Pominville back for Game Four? Yeah, I guess so. We'll have to see there. Ducks in, in Anaheim has been great, and the other one in the West has been absolutely vicious. Is that LA St. Louis? Series. Yeah, I haven't seen any of that yet, but I've that's heard. just very strong. I, it's going to be tough, especially if that one goes the distance for the team who comes out of there. Be interested to see what they have left. And you say that it's been vicious, but you haven't seen it on the national news in the way you have the Ottawa. Right, because it hasn't, it hasn't been, been dirty. And, right. right. Uh, that's good to see. What do you think? I'm going to pose a question that was posed on another sports talk show I've heard of. Do you like the fact that a team that gets out of a series like that, do you like that the playoffs are a battle of attrition? Would you rather see them be a battle of, would you rather the most skilled team wins most of the time? Because it doesn't seem to work that way. I like the idea of it being the hardest trophy to win for a reason. Yeah. You know, I think that the Stanley Cup, I've always said, is the hardest trophy in all sports to win. And I think it's because of that. Because, I mean, the Sabres arguably lost one because they didn't have 10 NHL defensemen in right. 2006. Yeah, they would have been. The, and and No Conley, who was playing like the best player in the world at the time. Right, until he got hit. knocked into forever. Right. Never to reemerge. So... But I'm torn about it because I've been through that part of it, but there's also probably other years when the Sabres weren't the best team in there and were able to make a run a little bit because of other teams' misfortune, maybe, or just because they would pound another team. But I think the NHL playoffs might be the one I'd like to see change the least. Yeah, it is really good. I mean, but like like I was saying, you do see a lot of, like it stinks that Pominville's out for the Wild right now. And I know that happened before the playoffs started, but... Uh, you like to see teams at their best. We only have one 3-0 of all eight, which is really cool. Yeah. You know, a lot of 2-1s. That could be 2-2s very easily with the team with one having a home game left. Or, you know, Ottawa looks like they've kind of taken control of that series a little bit. 
Yeah, Montreal lost their minds a little bit there. P.K. Subban is is a good player, but boy, is he He's a, a head case. case. Yeah. And I, I think they know that in Montreal, and they've tried to rein him in a little bit, but it hasn't worked. I mean, they had evidence of a guy's tooth on the ice, and he complained as much as he could about how he didn't high-stick the guy. He's just he's a head case a little bit. And it's interesting how a big story in the playoffs, we'll talk to Ostrinsky about this, has been the calls that have been made or not made in the overtimes. Yeah, you know, I didn't the see the one game. borderline call in the Pittsburgh game. They call it a holding on Crosby, who kind of bowled his way to the front and got taken down and ended up winning that game on right. the power play. And I don't think the the problem with that one is the call so much, but Crosby went down a little easy. Uh, and there have been games, I guess, where they just flat out didn't call. Some obvious stuff. Some obvious stuff, like over the puck over the glass, which is just an automatic call. Uh, so, yeah, it's strange. NHL officiating is always picked on. It's so subjective. I, I think they get it right most of the time. They're fairly good. But, again, do you want some people that wanted that or don't like the Crosby call are people that want the whistles to be thrown away in overtime. But, I mean, if you want that, then do you want them thrown away in the first period? Because then you're going back to 1988 clutch-and-grab hockey. So, I don't know. I don't like to beat up officials too much. It's a tough situation, and I think that for the most part they do a pretty good job. Yeah, I mean, really, for the fans it can be fun, but those three overtime games that where nothing gets called, those aren't really good for the teams involved. And we kind of talk about that. We'll talk about that later on too. Yeah, and you're going to talk a little bit about the post-discipline yeah. later in the show. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, so uh, my number two uh, today, kind of an interesting thing that's come out in the last couple of days about an alleged corked bat that's being auctioned. Um, a Mickey Mantle bat that he used in the 1960s. Um, it's got a reserve price of $5,000. Um, and it's when it was being verified that it was a Mantle bat, when it was going through the authentication process, uh, the guy who was doing it noticed there was alterations at the top of the barrel. And then he examined it some more, and the quote is that during our examination of the bat, we noticed a circular area 0.75 inches wide in the center of the top barrel. The finish in the area has also been touched up to mask the circular area. Alterations of this nature indicate the barrel has been drilled and filled with cork. They've done x-rays, and it confirms that the barrel has been drilled and filled with cork. So the first corked bat of mantle that we have seen or heard of. So... Yeah. What do you think? Does this change your opinion on the 536 home runs that Mickey Mantle hit in his career? I don't know. I mean, and he died in 1995, so there's no def- he can't defend himself. Right. With baseball, it's all relative. Like, if he was doing it back then, then everybody was probably doing it. So, what are you gonna? I mean, it's the type of thing like the steroid era. Are you gonna throw out every single record? Uh, for that error, I mean, are you going to take back championship? I mean, what what extent are you going to go to to uh, to punish these players or whatever? So, no, it doesn't change my opinion because, like I said, if he was doing it and getting away with it, I'm sure everybody was getting away with it back then because there wasn't the constant uh, spotlight that there is today. So it's probably way easier to get get away with things back then. Would I rather it have all been on the level? Sure, probably, I guess, but I don't know. I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna lose sleep over Mickey Mantle having a cork bat if that's really the case. Yeah, and don't don't bring it up to Mike Francesa. Touchy subject with uh, with him. 
Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, what isn't, though, with him? Yeah. Good point. All right, Chris Cluey. Um, I couldn't remember if I spoke about this on or off the air last week, but he was rumored he was going to get cut, and he did get cut. They drafted a fifth round, used a fifth round pick to draft a punter. If you don't know who Chris Cluey is, he's the punter for the Minnesota Vikings. He claims it might be because he's outspoken. He's outspoken on activism for human rights, notably for. Ant, uh, he likes to stir it up on the social media. Right. He loves Twitter. Yeah. He's an active user of Reddit. His super screen name is L-O-A-T-E, Lote. But he's getting beat up a little bit for claiming this because people will point to things like his net being down. And he's got a really interesting... If you want to read a, a punter defend himself about his numbers... I mean, here, I'll read a quick little thing here. He said, I'll try not to get too ranty here, but ignorance ignore, annoys me. First of all... You people so wisely spouting numbers, do none of you bother to do research? I had almost exactly my career average numbers for gross and had a career best for net. And while, yes, I mishit some punts, I also had a lot of very good punts, enough to continue being statistically the best punter the Vikings have ever had, Uh, which I hate having to say over and over again, but people don't seem to grasp the point. Do you know why my ranking was so low last year? Because it was the most drastically anomalous year in terms of punting averages in the history of the NFL. There's never been a year with that many guys having gross and net averages that high ever, not to mention once again for the seventh year in a row, I was asked by my coaches to try to hit the ball shorter, higher, and towards the numbers so our coverage guys would have an easier job. There were multiple times I hit 48-52-yard to punt with 4.6 to 4.8 seconds of hang time, and I got graded poorly by my special teams coach because it went over 44 yards. Not exactly conducive to putting up gaudy numbers. He goes on, and it's actually, if you're into stats and stuff like that it's actually kind of interesting to hear a punter's spin on why his numbers aren't as bad as they are and it's hard to argue with some of them he says he talks about facing six-man boxes which you usually hear in terms of running backs but he's talking about how his long snapper and himself have the fastest get off time in the nfl so people don't even try to block their punts and that they're he kind of throws his special teams under the bus just as they haven't been that good so they just double the gunners and return punts either way he does a good job to defend himself uh it's probably just down to money yeah 1.6 million or something that's a lot to pay a punter and then you draft a punter right and then they drafted one so they're gonna go with the kid so i don't totally think it's because of his outspokenness but it is cool to hear him defend himself he's good for the sport he's fun on twitter he's uh like i said he's on reddit posting in the NFL subreddit, which if you're a fan of football, you should be on the NFL subreddit of Reddit. It's phenomenal. It's a lot of fun. But, uh, yeah, Chris Cluey cut. So we'll see where he lands. I'd love to get him on this show because you love some Chris Cluey. He's he is he's a, a big video game dork, and uh, he's a numbers guy, and he writes funny things about, like, the day of the punter and He'd stuff He'd probably like love that. to come over to your house and play Settlers Catan with you on a Friday. I would hope so. Yeah. But I, he might even be in the dorkier games than me, like Dungeons & Dragons and stuff. I know he's a World of Warcraft player. All right, my last thing today is I noticed that the College Football Hall of Fame announced their newest class of inductees, and a couple things kind of stuck out. It's like, wow, a lot of guys got in that I maybe would have thought would have been in by now. Like, it feels like this ho- did this Hall of Fame start like yesterday? I mean, <laughs> Danny Werfel was a Heisman Trophy winner. Ron Dane was a Heisman Trophy winner. A two-time national champion and Tommy Frazier. Teddy Bruschi. Vinny Testaverde. I mean, these are Orlando Pace, the number one pick in the NFL draft. These guys played and retired and 
do they have to play their NFL? When are you eligible for this thing? Like what? Yeah, I, I don't know. It sounds almost like they're being great because that's a lot of guys right there that had great college careers and kind of average NFL careers. So it's almost like they're being graded on their but, NFL career. Right, and it should be that if it's the College Football Hall of Fame, it should just be about college football. You think so, yeah. You know, and like uh, the Rocket, Ishmael, he didn't make it. You okay. Know? So, I mean, there's there's guys that you think Brian Bosworth probably one that sticks out that is known for being one of the great college right. football players, and he's not in the College Football Hall of right. Fame. Right, to be in the conversation for one of the biggest busts ever in the NFL right. means you must have been must really, be really good, good in college. Yep. So, yeah, it's an odd thing. It'd be like uh, not inducting someone into their high school marching band Hall of Fame because they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something like that. Like, it seems like a weird scale to grade them on. Those are all names you hear and immediately think, oh, they had a great college career. Yeah, very, very bizarre uh, of College Football Hall of Fame. Almost not quite as bizarre as the WWE Hall of Fame, but <laughs> questionable. Yeah, my last quick thing here is just an update on a story we had last week sad update that referee whose name has now been released ricardo portillo i imagine portillo portillo 46 year old guy was punched by a kid after giving him a yellow card died on saturday after a week in a coma and kind of what i said was kind of echoed by the family that they're at these games they hear the growing trend and the increased venom in the voice of like the parents I was thinking about this after I kind of ranted about this last week on the show. There's, You can good-natured rib a umpire or something like that or play three blind mice when the umpire blows a call or something like that. That's one thing, but they said the fans and the parents in the stands, they, they create this culture where kids get enraged by referees. So if anything, and... I'm sure for the family's sake, if they try to find a silver lining, try to think of this guy that's now dead because this kid took a youth soccer game too seriously and had to punch him in the face. Uh, totally unnecessary. Like I said last week, a lot of lives are going to be ruined over this. Yeah, that kid's, I mean, I'm sure the kid didn't mean to kill him, but his life's over now. Yep. I mean, 17-year-old kid, I mean, he could be tried as an adult. I, his name's still not released or anything like that, but it's his life is over. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what charge it is, too, if it's going to be... I mean, it's probably not premeditated first-degree no, right, murder. right, Seems like more of a manslaughter type thing or a third-degree murder. But yeah, but it's, it's ugly. Yeah, it's a really bad situation. All right, let's get into the playoffs. We're going to start with the NHL playoffs with Puck Daddy, and then we'll come back for the book club update. <laughs> Our first guest is from Mattawa, New Jersey, and is a graduate of the University of Maryland. He is the editor and main contributor of the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo, co-host of the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast, and is annually named one of the most influential or powerful men in hockey by the Hockey News. He's making his eighth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the very excited, I'm sure, Greg Wyshynski. What's up, Puck Daddy? Uh, nothing much. How are you, man? I couldn't find out where you finished this year in the hockey news thing. They don't put that online. Uh, or what? Are you still? I believe 90? I was. I was ninety three. So you I dropped, dropped a spot, a spot. because my uh, my uh, power and influence is waning. I, they gave me the, the Gilmore this year. Yeah, you know what it was is you didn't. You weren't on the twenty four seven thing. Hurt you. Remember <laughs> last right. year? You were such, see, yeah. see my, my iPod uh, recording. Uh, 
Ilya Bergerov on uh, 24-7 this year. Yeah. No, you know, it's funny. I mean, I am, I am preparing myself every year to drop off the list, in which case, you know, I'll have to placate myself with, with copious amounts of whiskey to, uh, right. to uh, you know, feel, feel bad about life and the fact that I no longer have any power or influence. So it's bound to happen at some point. So I'm really excited to talk to you about the playoffs today, but I was oddly thinking of you. We haven't talked in a while. Obviously, we haven't talked to a lot of people in a while with me getting sick over the winter and having surgery and everything. We took some time off. But um, as the season has progressed, I, w- I was thinking of, of a conversation. I was like, I know we talked about this, and I couldn't remember what you said. And when you said you were going to come out, I wanted to find it, so I found it. Listen to this crazy conversation we had, um, and it was in February of 2011, I guess. I don't know, February of last season. So here, listen to this. This is crazy. Last thing, I'm going to get you out of here on this. What do you know about Corey Conacher? Uh, I don't know. What do I know? Doesn't ring a bell at all? Not completely, no. No, not completely. Okay, Corey Conacher is a kid who four years ago was the youngest player in Division One hockey. He played at a college locally here, Canisius College, which is one of the worst programs in all of D1 hockey. Um, he ended up the number one scorer of all time after four years. He has type 1 diabetes. Uh, he started out for Elmira in the East Coast Hockey League last year, made his way up to the NH or the AHL for a little bit, and is tearing up the AHL on a one-way contract in Norfolk. He scored two goals in the All. How about that, Puck Daddy? They, ne- I need a pro evaluation contract or something, huh? <laughs> as far as him turning out to be a player, I mean, it's he's like the story of the year in a way. I mean. You know, the underdog story of the year, I should say. You know what I mean? Like, this kid makes the team. It's kind of strange he got traded. I, I, I mean, that kind of hurts my uh, hurts my enthusiasm a little bit here. But at least he gets to play in the playoffs. But, I mean, he's the first ever. I was on it. I, I was like, this kid, he's got it. And I was told you, Puck. You were. I remember that I remember that conversation. Yeah, you were You were way ahead of the curve on, on time. I mean, I remember at the time it was, I think, one of the uh, AHL's leading goal, leading uh, point getters. Uh, yeah, you know, I think he was leading there, but, Yeah, uh, I think he was leading it. So yeah, I mean, yeah, he was an interesting story. I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that um, I mean, him being left off the, the Calder Trophy uh, finalist list is, is a symptom of, of people thinking that he was merely a product of the players he played with, which is ironic when you consider that Brandon Saad got nominated for basically playing with really good players all year. Um, but yeah, Conacher was a good story. Uh, I think in some ways Gallagher... Is the same kind of story, not not the same background necessarily, but another sort of diminutive player who was a spark plug on his team. Um, different different kinds of offense for those two players, but uh, but Gallagher was was sort of the same sort of uh, you know shot in the arm for his team like Conacher was for most of the season. Yeah, interesting. I was a little surprised when he when he came up as, uh, but I guess they were basically just probably I would guess Tampa Bay thinking we have Tyler Johnson, Corey Conacher, and they're about the same. Let's keep one and add a goalie, right? I mean, is that basically probably well, yeah. what came you, you, And you have yeah. to get to get, and uh, right. you know, they wanted Conacher in, in order to get uh, in order to get Bishop. Uh, they had to answer up because there were certainly other teams that were looking to try to acquire Bishop at the time. So, yeah, it was. it's weird to see a guy who was right in the middle of a, of a Calder Trophy uh, campaign get dealt like that, but, uh, but you got to get to get. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and I didn't mean uh, to play that to embarrass you in any way or say you shouldn't have known. I was just kind of like, it was just oh, an no, interesting cool. conversation. That, you know, yeah, it was an interesting conversation. Right, my only hockey is not exactly my forte. <laughs> Nor mine. And I think I went on to say, you know, I just, I only know about this because I know the kid being around Buffalo. That was the only reason I had known. I, I didn't, you know, 
have a, go to a Canisius game and have a special eye for scouting or anything. I just knew of the kid and was kind of following his story from the from the beginning. But um, anyway, we're in the middle of uh, the first round of the playoffs, a little bit later than normal. Uh, no surprise here in Buffalo that we're not a part of it ag- again, which is getting to be a, a habit here, um, despite the new ownership and uh, I forget what the exact quote was, but oh, the Sabres exist to win Stanley Cups now. Puck Daddy, did you know that? <laughs> that's right. That's that's the plan, right? Right. Yes, that's the existence. And they named Ron Ralston the coach today, and we won't waste much time on the Sabres. But do you think it was the right move to take the interim tag off, or do you think that they should have just went out and found a coach? Well, I feel like if they were going to hire a coach, it was going to be somebody that was going to be, uh, you know, geared towards a rebuild. And if you already have a guy in your organization that can kind of be that, why not give him a shot? I mean, Ralston reputation-wise, as a guy who works well with young players, uh, his his history with the World Junior teams is, is solid, uh, two years in the AHL. Obviously, did some really good things with some of the younger players in the roster uh, in his interim time this past season. So, I mean, if you're looking at a, at a long rebuild and, and you want to approach it from that aspect, it's, it's not a bad hire. I think, if nothing else, he's going to have more and more players that he's previously coached come up and be on his roster and, and trust in his, his abilities as a coach, and, and that's always a good thing. Um, but it's not the sexy rock star move that I think um, Sabres fans may have been hoping for when uh, things look so dire. I mean, you know, missing the playoffs, trading off a bunch of assets at the trade deadline, knowing that Miller and Vanek probably aren't going to be around for a rebuild. There's, there's a lot of reasons why you'd hope that maybe they go with someone who's a little less uh, predictable. Um, the other reason being that you'd like to get somebody in there that might be able to challenge Darcy a little bit, but clearly Darcy decided to go with a known commodity that he probably could uh, control pretty well as coach. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, that part of it at all. And it's Is it insane for someone outside of Buffalo as much as it is for someone here that Darcy Regeers is still the GM of the team? I can't figure it out. I mean, unless it's just a complete hesitancy from uh, from, from Ted Black and from from Terry Badula to try to clean house all the way. I mean, you, figure, you always figured once Ruff went, Darcy Regeers would go with him. Right, absolutely. Um, but not only have they not fired him, they basically handed the reins to him and said, fix this. And so now we've got this, uh, this Darcy Regeer rebuilding plan in which, you know, uh, I guess they're going to draft high and then either keep the guys they draft or try to flip them for better players like the LA Kings did. Um, meanwhile, you know, he wants to kind of exist somewhere between that and, uh, and a full Pittsburgh Penguin style tank. So we'll see exactly what they, End up doing, but uh, yeah, from an outsider's perspective, it was it was surprising to see to see Regeer stay. That said, you know, and I, you know, I, I think you know, I said this before. I was really surprised and impressed by the returns that he got at the trade deadline. I didn't yeah, think absolutely. he had a bad deadline at all. I think I wound up giving uh, Buffalo like an A at the deadline for the amount of draft picks he compiled. Um, now it's just a matter of using them and using them effectively, and that's going to be the real the real question mark. Yeah, I thought the Pineville. Trade was great, but we can talk about the Sabres all summer if we wanted. More interesting thing is the playoffs, and when there's eight series going on at once, it's kind of hard. But what has kind of sparked your interest the most uh, with most every series playing three games, some having played four? Is it maybe the Penguins looking a little sloppy? Is it the Sharks dominating the Canucks? What's kind of jumped out in your mind so far? Uh, the Sharks... Beating up on Vancouver was uh, is sort of a stunner. I mean, you never expect a team like Vancouver to get down 3-0 in a series um, and, and face a potential sweep. 
And it, it's a combination of, of the extension of the Vancouver Canucks goal-scoring problems that have now uh, plagued them for multiple postseasons, and, and the Sharks looking like a completely different team. I mean, it, it's, it's almost, without anything officially happening, it's almost as if the, the torch has been passed to Logan Couture as the star on this team. And I think right. that's a great thing. I think he's, he's the sort of uh, clutch, uh, gritty player that this team's kind of been waiting for to grab the leadership mantle. So Thornton and Marlowe can kind of do their thing as Couture's team. And then on top of that, Miami between the pipes has been ridiculous for them all season. So uh, it, it feels like a different Sharks team than we've seen in the past. And the other series out west that I love is the, the LA-St. Louis series, just because it's, it's just a black and blue nasty, brutal-hitting, tightly-played series. Um, it's probably not for everybody that, <laughs> that likes to go and watch high-scoring affairs in the playoffs, but for my money, it's been, it's been such an entertaining series, and, and to see two teams just completely battle it out and know that you know whoever's left standing is going to be you know, sort of wobbling around because they've been beat up so badly. Yeah, and you know, I, I say this every year because, and I always thought that the two series that the Sabres and the Senators played in back-to-back years was a great example of this after the last, uh, well, the two lockouts ago, how the overtime games just swing these series in such an intense way and how important it is winning the overtime games. Maybe the 93 Canadians, didn't they win like 10 in a row that year or something like that behind Patrick Watt on their way to the Cup? I mean, it seems like the the league is very close, especially in a short season like this, and the games are close, and it's the butchy overtime challenge seemingly every night on Twitter, and some series is being swung every night by what happens in those few minutes of overtime that are played. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some penalty calls in overtime here and there, some of them automatic, the puck over the glass stuff in the, in the uh, Capital Ranger series, and then, you know, the sort of more controversial calls like the one on... Uh, on Sydney Crosby, the one that Sydney Crosby drew in the overtime with the Islanders. The holding, so, right? yeah. uh, we've not seen any 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 real long marathons as of uh, Tuesday. <laughs> that could change all the time, I'm sure. But um, but you know, overtime and, and hockey, especially in the Stanley Cup playoffs, can certainly shift momentum. The Blackhawks, despite losing one in Minnesota, sure do look like a, a championship squad so far, huh? Have they have they been the team that have impressed you the most this so far this this far as in terms of making a long run? Well, you know, I, I kind of, uh, they've, they're in a tough series right now with Minnesota. Um, I'm really impressed by their depth. I'm really impressed by their defense. I'm, uh, we've yet to see uh, them have the full healthy goaltending battery with Crawford and Emery, but that's been fine because Corey Crawford's been good. Uh, you know, for my money, I, I, I had them coming out of the West uh, before the playoffs started. Um, I think they're the most talented team. I think they're the most well-coached team, and, and you know, the, 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 the great thing about Chicago is that there's so many teams where the star players are just there and, and don't necessarily lead the way in the way that the uh, Blackhawks stars do. I mean, Jonathan Taves, we know, is arguably the best captain in hockey, and, and the way that uh, Patrick Kane has played this year as far as puck distribution and and, uh, and, and being a, a threatening player offensively almost on every shift, I think, has been really remarkable to watch. You know, I said uh, last week I was excited to see John Tavares in the playoffs, and I don't know, the Penguins fans have got to be a little tight in the sense that they've been down dark roads before um, with this Islanders team and being heavily favored against them. I think that same 1993 season that I mentioned with Montreal is the last time the Islanders upset a heavily favored Pittsburgh team. Would you be worried at all about 
I know they'd be very worried right now if they didn't get that call on Crosby in the power play goal and New York won that game somehow um, over the weekend. But where do you think as it stands now, 2-1 to one Pens with another game in Long Island? Kind of felt like they were, the Islanders needed that, that game three yeah. to really put the pressure on them. Um, yeah, I think playing in front of the home crowd, they're going to come with a very strong effort in every game they play in Nassau. But at the end of the day, it's just it's just a, a, a talent deficit between the two. I mean, the Islanders, I think, have more speed. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Tavares gives them a, a chance in every game. And Ocposo's been ridiculously good. I think he's been arguably their best player in the series. But, um, you know, when, when you're Pittsburgh and you can throw and Malkin on the same line or on different lines and, and you know, you, you get the depth of scoring that they have on other lines, the, the Morrow line and places like that. It's, it just becomes a situation where, you know, the the competition is just too strong. And, and the Islanders are starting to build up that forward group into something special. But the more you see it and you, and you see their defense, you, you know they have to go out and get some some real, you know, I mean, it's not the fair, not a fair comparison because I don't think this kind of guy would be available, but a Ryan Suter type to kind of bring it all together on the blue line for them. And the only way they're going to do that, do that is through a trade because um, despite the fact that the Brooklyn thing is looming and despite the fact that I think they can throw some money around, uh, I just don't see anybody necessarily signing with the Islanders at this point. Do you? I know that I joked that Gary Bettman would do backflips down Broadway if it was Penguins-Blackhawks in the Cup. Do you think after a few games, is that still what you would lean? And am I wrong? Is there is there somehow a better matchup for the NHL than that? It seems like that would be the one that they would want the most. No, that would be the one they want the most. I think Chicago and, and Pittsburgh or even Chicago and Boston would be fine. Uh, you know, as long as you have Chicago uh, coming out of the West, because I think they are right now, you know, they're, they're, they're a casual fan knows to watch the Blackhawks at this point. So, so those would be the matchups that you're looking for. I mean, Chicago and the Rangers was the one that I had coming out uh, before the playoffs, but the Rangers obviously are in a spot of trouble with the with the Capitals. Um, so that, I think the, the Pittsburgh and Chicago matchup would be the marquee one, um, you know, with the amount of stars and the attention that we get. Yeah, and is there anything kind of off the radar for the average hockey fan that is should be a big story, one that the huge hockey fan is kind of focused in on here in the first round so far? Maybe the flurry goaltending, or is there something a little bit off the radar that a casual fan who maybe is li- tuned in for some basketball talk and stuck around for some hockey might be like, oh, <laughs> you know. Well, it's been the, the, the first round of the playoffs is, is traditionally – a wonderful time where rivalries are born and unpredictable things happen and uh, and upsets are made. And, you know, in the case of Montreal and Ottawa, that's again, we've seen almost all that stuff. I mean, we've seen a rivalry born between two teams that don't have never faced each other in the playoffs before. We've seen a brutal injury to Lars Eller that, uh, you know, filled the, the ice with blood and, and sparked a lot of bad feelings between the two teams. And we're seeing an Ottawa team that's looking to upset a number two seed. So, I mean, that, that series to me has been one where you might not be familiar with the Ottawa Senators. You might be familiar with Montreal, but not exactly about the style of play that they have this year. Um, and it's an easy series to just, it's the embodiment of what makes the first round of the playoffs a lot of fun. Yeah, they got to be loving that one up in the Great Wet North. Um, I know they wanted, probably, going into the last day of the season for it to work out where it was going to be Toronto and Montreal, but maybe they even got a better series with Montreal and Ottawa. For sure. Yeah, so, all right. Well, like we said, it's Greg Wyshynski, Puck Daddy Blog is on Yahoo Sports. 
uh, Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast every day. Um, at Wyshynski on Twitter. Man, you're everywhere, Puck Daddy. What about Simmons? Has he called you for some? Uh, he, I know he likes to steal our guests. That Simmons, he's he trolls. He trolls. <laughs> we, didn't, the we didn't have our usual pre-playoff chat, but that might have something to do with the uh, NBA playoffs picking uh, up, picking up at the same time. So hopefully we'll get back. Uh, we'll get back together for the second round. But yeah, he's uh, you know he's a mutual admiration society between myself and uh, Bill Simmons, which is always uh, a cool thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a few more listeners than us, but we're. You know, slowly gaining on him. You know what I mean? Slowly. So, all right. Well, we'll let you go. Oh, one last thing. Did you? Uh, so I did. You see the? Um, did you see one the NCAA tournament by any chance? <laughs> Why do you ask? Oh well, because um, I don't know if you know this, but my brother plays for Yale. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and it's never mentioned on the podcast that my well, brother plays that's for. Very Yale. I, I was I was somewhat aware of this. Um, I always marvel at the uh, the um, intelligence uh, deficit that occurred in your family. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's not the only deficit either between uh, between <laughs> me and uh, Anthony. Uh, we, yeah, so we're we're, wel- we're looking forward to welcoming, as we call him, the Golden Boy home on Saturday with uh, a, a very go. beautiful watch and a mini version of the uh, national championship trophy that he not got. Not bad. From the well, congratulate him on behalf of the Puck Daddy family. I will do it, and there was a great. Uh, I thought the Puck Daddy coverage of the tournament was great as well. So, yeah, yeah, Leahy and Lambert did a hell of a job. Yeah, you guys never, never, covering covering the end today, covering the Frozen Four. Never miss anything over there. Thanks a lot, Puck Daddy. We always appreciate it. Anytime, man. Thanks. Thanks, bud. All right. Thanks to Greg Wyshynski, the Puck Daddy, for being on the show. We're going to get into some basketball playoff talk with Tass Mellis in a second. Real quick book club update. Uh, basically this. One last quick mention for Phenom, The Making of Bryce, Hop- Bryce Harper by Rob Mish. It's an updated version of The Last Natural. For more information, follow Rob on Twitter at Rob M-I-E-C-H. It's a paperback version of the book with a new chapter that covers Harper's rookie season in Major League Baseball. Also, our friend Jeff Perlman, author, who's going to come up later in the show. And actually, there's a little bit of a back and forth between Mr. John Wertheim and I about whether or not something he said should be cut from the show. <laughs> and we actually decide in talking that we're going to cut it, but we're not going to cut it because Jeff gave us the okay to leave it. Right. But uh, he did recommend a book called The Bird, The Life and Legacy of Mike Fidrich, and that's by Doug Wilson. Um, it's available on Amazon, and there's a Kindle version. And uh, we're going to look into that as maybe being the official book club book of the month for May. But if there's something else that you'd like to suggest, you can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at sports underscore casters. We're going to do something we've never tried before, but we're going to see if we can stack interviews back to back here. You're going to hear an interview we did with Todd Mellis. Or Tass. Tass Mellis. Sorry about that. Uh, we're talking NBA playoffs. Then you're going to hear um, – we're going to go right into an interview with John Wertheim that starts with a highlight and then has the theme, his fight song and then the interview. And then we'll be back for one last thing to close out the show. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario. He is the co-founder and co-host of the Basketball Jones podcast, blog, and TV show at the Score Television Network. 
podcast is simulcast each Friday through the NBA playoffs on the Grantland Podcast Network. And he is making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the very talented Tass Mellis. How's it going today, Tass? Wonderful. How's it going? So do you feel, um, how, what's the vibe in Canada? Is there a little less bitterness towards the ignorance of the uh, Americans and their view towards rock and roll now that Rush is officially in the Hall of Fame? Or is it not really uh, registering up there as... Oh sure! Oh sure! It's something we talk about daily. Daily, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, things have uh, settled down around here now. Yeah, there were there were riots um, until yeah until they went into the Hall of Fame, and now everything has calmed down. We're all uh, we're all back in our igloos, and the uh, the riots have all calmed down. We're good now. So busy time for you, obviously, with the NBA playoffs going on, yeah, and. For sure. There's been two great games in the playoffs so far. I'm thinking of the Bulls and the um, and the the uh, Brooklyn, the one game there, and then the game last night, obviously with Steph Curry going off and the big comeback by the Spurs. How do you think the playoffs have been so far in terms of entertainment value for the NBA in the first round and the very beginning of the second? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, you know there is there is just sort of a general down feeling and you know, just some feelings of sadness and just kind of everybody kind of kicking the dirt a little bit if you're an NBA fan and an NBA supporter an NBA sort of you know ambassador part of the media like we are just because of the injuries uh, mainly mainly Russell Westbrook and I mean we had all sort of come to terms with Derrick Rose and and other players uh, you know Rajon Rondo guys that aren't around uh, but when Russell went down um, you know that that kind of soured things but then, uh, you know, the, the, I think Oklahoma City and Houston, they kind of brought things back to life. The fact that it was a really close series, uh, the fact that it went six, uh, was, was kind of, uh, you know, they played, they played a couple of good ones themselves. Uh, so I think the spirits sort of rose watching that play or that series. Um, the Memphis LA series was great. I mean, you kind of have to be a certain type of basketball fan to like, the sort of grinded out series, uh, but the fact that it was close was was nice. And um, you know, other than that, uh, you know, the Lakers Spurs series was a rout. Nobody really cared about that. Uh, it feels like the Heat. We say this on our show: the Heat haven't been in the playoffs, you know, for weeks because they just walked over the Bucks um, and then showed up. Uh, so you know, there's there haven't been a lot of great stories. I, I kind of agree with you there. There have been sort of a couple games here or there, and the Bulls have been uh, right in the thick of that, along with the Warriors. The Bulls' spirit, um, you know, they're that sort of underdog team um, with all the injuries that they've overcome. It's been pretty ridiculous. Uh, they are, they are the, the, the story of the playoffs, I think, so far, and uh, Stephen Curry is, is 1A right there, um, a guy that, you know, as a, a hardcore observer, a hardcore watcher. I watch, you know, two, three, four games a night as much as I possibly can. And uh, Steph is getting me on the edge of my seat. And no matter when he's playing, especially these third quarters where he's shooting like a ridiculous like 70% through the playoffs, uh, he comes over half court and I'm I'm ready. I mean, I'm ready for him to chuck it basically from the mid-court line. You know, as soon as he gets to that three-point line, ready for it to to go up and to go down so he's he's added a new dynamic to nba fandom so that's that's the biggest thing i guess uh you know besides the the, the fact that the bulls have, have worked their ass off and really 
done their city proud, even without Derek Rose and, and that whole cloud hanging over that situation. Uh, them and, and Curry, you know, becoming a really special player and him growing and, and the, the Warriors situation with Mark Jackson uh, leading the way there and how inspirational he is. Uh, a couple of great stories there, you know, despite sort of that injury cloud that's hung over the, uh, the NBA the last couple months. Yeah, there was a few six-game series in the first round, and then the one seven. And I know it's about money, so it's never going to change, but do you think the NBA made a mistake at all going from five games in the first round to seven, or are you just the kind of fan that wants as many games in the playoffs as you can get? Well, no, I'm not. I'm not, you know, just uh, I don't think that, you know, the, the regular season should be 82 games. It, it's To me, it, it's, it devalues... Uh, the fact that guys have to play sometimes four, sometimes five nights a week, and, and the bodies just aren't meant to do that, and, and players are becoming more and more vocal about that over the last couple of years. So I'm not the type of guy to say, hey, I just want more games. That being said, um, I, you know, the five-game series, as exciting as it is, I don't think it's the best indicator for who the best team is. You know, anything can happen as we see it happen in, in baseball, uh, you know, the fact that you to go to the other extreme, the the one game playoff, hell yeah, it's exciting. You know we see it in, in the NFL, um, but I'd rather see a, a seven game series. And it's unfortunate that teams like the Bucks um, are were in the playoffs and aren't aren't uh, good enough to handle uh, the Miami Heat or a sub five hundred team. And yeah, that one that one was was the extreme. That one was a sweep. And uh, there was no chance the Bucks were going to win. We saw a sweep in the Lakers series, but they were injured. Um, so yeah, one out of eight series, I would say, uh, could have used a five-game series just to get it over with. But uh, you know, I think that is the anomaly. If it's you know one out of eight, it's twelve point five percent of the series. So I'm not really that worried about uh, you know about it being boring. Like again, it was one of them, and. Uh, the rest, you know, the rest did go at you know, six or seven, um, and there wasn't even a five-game series from what I remember. So uh, the three out of five, just anything can happen. And, yeah, I used to watch that and I used to like it, but I do like how it's uniform across, you know, across from the first round uh, all the way to the NBA Finals. I would like a shortened season from 66 to 70 games personally to get sort of that, uh, you know, the, the fandom a little bit higher so there aren't, you know, as many games at home where, you know, we have those, you know, January and February lulls sometimes. I'd like, you know, the reduced games from like six, eight, ten home games reduced. So that that's where my thinking is. I, I don't mind some of uh, these seven playoff games. If we're on talking about playoff reformatting, yeah, I guess it's that, that we could have a conversation about that. You know, a, team, a, a ninth place team or a tenth place team like the Jazz or whoever make the playoffs, the Blazers, the Mavs would have done a better job in the playoffs over the Bucks, and uh, you would have seen a better series if they played the Heat, for instance, in a 1-16, if we just threw all the teams, the 16 best records, into a pot and, and reseeded them that way. What about the idea that the NBA goes is, has a true bracket, as opposed to the NHL, who recedes after the first, and, you know, first round? Well, that's about money, for sure. Uh, the fact that if I'm a reporter for, let's say, the Chicago Bulls, I know I'm flying to Miami after the game, um, after we win, because uh, we know we're playing this winner of the 1-8 seed. So reporters and media are increased because they are, can set up their flights for, 
for post-series. Um, so you know you're getting more media coverage if you're the NBA, which means you're getting more stories, which means more people are reading about it, which means more people are talking about it. Um, so uh, that's all a, a money decision, and it's a smart money decision. I mean, I, I, I don't mind the bracket style. I, you know, I, I think in true, the true fair thing to do is the reseeding. Um, but it's also not only for more media, but it also sets up TV better. The broadcast teams can go, okay, well, we're going, uh, you know, if we're, we're doing this next ser- in this next series, we're host- we're going to Miami uh, because they're going to be the home team or whatever. You know, you, you know what I'm saying. You just, it, they're just, there's already a, a preemptive sort of uh, thought process about where they're going, et cetera. So uh, we, when it comes to, to TV, TV drives the business. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't really hate it in true. The true fair thing would be the way the NHL does it in reseeding. But it, it, that also adds to, to last-minute sort of uh, trying to find flights, et cetera, like dealing with that kind of stuff for, for media and the television broadcasters. It's a grind already. Uh, it's a two-month grind, this playoffs. So um, I, I don't mind that they sort of have this ability to uh, – just plan out that we're going to stay in the uh, the Ritz or the you know the Hilton in, in downtown in South Beach rather than trying to scramble and find a hotel last second. I, I don't mind that. Two quick Knicks questions. Do you think they're in trouble here down one nothing against Indiana? And did you have any problem with Carmelo getting an MVP vote? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think uh, you know we talked about this on our show. Start with the MVP vote. Uh, that was the wrong vote, but uh, I'm I I'm always the backer of the most outstanding player should win the best player. Call it the mop, the MOP. The most outstanding player should always win. Jordan should have always won. Barkley shouldn't have won it. I mean, uh, to me, it's the best player. But you know, I know Gary Washburn sort of the, the argument he made. The guy who voted uh, for Carmelo Anthony, Gary Washburn, right. said that. Uh, listen, I, uh, he, Carmelo is the most valuable player to his team. If he's not there, they finish outside the playoffs. And that's totally subjective. The MVP has never had sort of a uniform idea of what it represents. You can vote for the best player. You can vote for the guy who's most important to his team. That's why Dwight Howard got a bunch of MVP votes two years ago. Uh, you know, it, it changes from year to year. So Washburn was the only guy to do it this year. I'll tell you next year, if LeBron sort of stays status quo, if his numbers stay the same, and I'm not sure how much better he can get, they might increase a little bit. But we already call him the best player. Next year, if he's sort of the same and he isn't, um, he, he doesn't have such a jump, he won't be the best quote-unquote story, and writers want stories. So you, you'll see some voter fatigue. Even though LeBron will be the best player next year, you'll get more votes most likely if he stays the same for a Mello, a Durant, if he's a better story. Let's say if, if the Thunder you know, have the best record in the league or, or one of those guys makes a, a really uh, uh, a real big jump. You know what I mean? It's about, a, it's about a story, so that's why the one vote came for him. But on the other hand, we know who the best player is, and that's who should win. fact is, it doesn't necessarily make a great headline at times, and next year it won't because LeBron probably will be the best player but won't have that discernible jump that we all see. As far as the Knicks go, yeah, you've got to be worried. This team does not show up for quarters on end. They were lucky to get by the Celtics in a way um, because they are the Celtics, and you can show up for a quarter or two, uh, a quarter of great defense, and the Celtics can't recover because they didn't have a good offense. Uh, The Knicks um, 
can't really do that with the Pacers because the Pacers work their ass off. They run up and down the floor. Uh, they'll outwork you, and they have some scoring as well as the defense to boot, as well as the size advantage. So you got to be worried. Uh, this team is not coming together at the right time. It's sort of falling apart, J.R. Smith, ever since that elbow to uh, Jason Terry and getting that suspension has fallen off, and they really need his offense. Uh, Raymond Felton has been there. And then uh, Carmelo Anthony is the other guy. They're, they're so desperate for offense that J.R. Smith's falling off has really hurt. Combine that with Melo not being able to find the bucket recently, and yeah, I think this team is sort of uh, mentally falling apart. They can't put together even a really good half, um, it seems like, even the last few games. They did it against Game 6 in the Knicks, but Games 4 and 5 they didn't. And then you saw what happened in Game 1. They were down uh, to the Pacers basically the entire game. So it's, uh, it's something to worry about. I, I think they have more potential than the Pacers do, and they showed that um, you know, going down the stretch in the regular season. Um, and and for, for stretches against the Knicks, but, uh, yeah, I'm worried about their defense, it, it, especially their defense. I think the offense will come around, but um, the D just doesn't – they don't put it together for uh, long stretches. That being said, the Pacers aren't a great road team. I think the Knicks, as we talk uh, right now um, on uh, on Tuesday here, I think the Knicks do tie it up, and then, you know, we'll see. It's going to be a long series because I don't think either team really can put it together for long stretches. Two last quick ones. We'll get you out of here. Um kind of to get to gauge where you think this is headed. Do you think, do you still have the same confidence in the Heat that you did before the Game 1 loss, and do you think they'll face a Game 7? And did the Westbrook injury change your prediction, maybe, about who gets through the West? Um, the Heat need some sort of adversity. Uh, you know, you, Greg Popovich for the San Antonio Spurs, last year they won their first 10 playoff games after winning their last 10 regular season games. So they won 20 in a row going in uh, to game three of the Western Conference Final against OKC. And Greg Popovich said, uh, you know, this year he said, I wish we had lost at some point before then instead of game three, which they lost, and then they ended up losing game four, five, and six and getting bounced by the Thunder because you just need some sort of adversity. Uh, You need to be brought back to earth. I think that's a good thing for the Miami Heat. Not really worried about them. They're down 2-1 to the Pacers last year in round two, down 3-2 to the Celtics in the conference final. Came back to win both, obviously. I'm okay with what happened. They're going to lose a game. They weren't going to go fo 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 fo. It's, it's totally fine. Uh, they still have the best team. They weren't in a good flow. Um, and the fact is they won. I, I'm just not worried about a team that won 27 games in a row. I don't. I don't think they're... They've plummeted since then. They messed up. You know, Dwayne Wade took a, uh, a selfish shot at the end of that game. It's, it happens. They took some bad shots in last year's round two and round three. Not worried about them. They're still making the finals, in my opinion. And uh, I don't see them making or having a game seven until possibly uh, the finals when they will play. Yeah, a different team. Um, I thought OKC was the best team. Right. Uh, Russell, Russell Westbrook is. Uh, a special player that some people appreciate, some people don't. Um, and uh, listen, you, you take off the second best player out of, off a lot of teams in this league. Uh, you know, besides the Miami Heat, um, you're going to have a huge, huge drop off, and that's what's happening with the OKC. I don't think they get by Memphis if Memphis. Uh, puts it together like they can, like they did against the Clippers. Um, they basically, my worry is Memphis should have won game one against OKC. Um, but, you know, Kevin Martin and Kevin Durant really, really performed. 
but you're not going to get a great Kevin Martin performance every game. You're not going to get a great KD performance every game. I think that one will go seven, but I think the Grizzlies win, and uh, the Grizzlies-Spurs will be a great series, and I don't know. That one's a coin flip for who's going to face the Heat, uh, in my opinion. All right, well, it's the basketballjones.net where you can find uh, stuff every day in Grantland on Fridays through the NBA playoffs. You can follow Tass on Twitter at T-A-S-M-E-L-A-S. Thanks a lot for joining us today. We really appreciate you making some time in what I know is a busy time during the playoffs. What a fun time, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Playing in an overtime game, and especially on this scale, what's it like inside the minds of the goaltenders? Well, they know that they got to be sure. If they're, if they're going to have any opportunity to freeze a puck, freeze it. If they're going to have a chance to deflect the puck in the corner, they got to do it. Here's a chance, and score! Yale has done it! Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of the Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters while promoting New York Times' best-selling book, Scorecasting, The Hidden Influences Between How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. He is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. He is making his 11th appearance on the show. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great John Wertheim. How's it going there, Mr. Wertheim? 11th appearance. 11. What's, what's that get me? Is get, there a... Uh, it gets you between it's second and third. not a gold or silver. What, uh, yes. what do we call an 11th anniversary? Think, anyway, yeah, uh, yeah. good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, you know, this is exciting because... So we've done three shows since Yale won the national championship in hockey, which was their first national championship since the 50s and they won that in swimming so i don't i don't know if that's something you remember or argue when you talk with a harvard fan or something you know um like you know hey harvard guy we won that swimming in the 50s but uh the first week we were able to talk to two of the national champions and then last week we were able to talk to uh we talked to last week that was fun to talk about oh geez i don't even remember but this week is our first actual yale grad so you know one thing i noticed about the frozen four that was really unique to yale and i want to get your opinion on this is so in the four corners of the lower bowl of the rink in pittsburgh at the frozen four were the various sections where the people were clearly all represented through the tickets purchased for the university or the players list. It was the specific sections for the fans of the teams. You know, on the far end of the rink was the um, UMass Lowell was on the right and uh, St. Cloud State was on the left. And then on the other end, you know, Yale was on the left and, and Quinnipiac was on the right. And it was clear that in the three sections, the majority of them were students. But then it was clear in the Yale section that the vast majority were alumni and family and fewer much fewer students and i it just seems like that yale athletics are more about okay so on campus there's the students that play them and it seems like they all support each other and every time i've been to the whale it's sold out and there's students there and the band's there for sure but it seems like this program really is supported by alumni so as an alumnus what has it been like in the weeks after uh the team has won a national championship that, I mean, I guess you would argue is 
the third most important in NCAA sports, I guess. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I would say you know. I mean, there's I'd, obviously yeah, basketball, and football, yeah, little, so. yeah, maybe Major League World Series, yeah, um, maybe yeah World, World Series would be but, the other uh, one. point. Point taken. No, I mean, I, I think uh, at a time when Yale has kind of made this decision, you know, you agree or disagree, Yale's kind of made this decision to get out of this college athletics arms race, and the percent of varsity athletes has has dropped and. They basically, you know, if you look at the Ivy League titles that Princeton and Harvard wins versus Yale, it's not even close. I mean, Yale's kind of opted out of this. It's it's kind of especially ironic. But, um, no, I mean, the, the, the you know, last year there was a lot of buildup, in part, I think, because the, the game was in Bridgeport. But, um, you know, the, the social media traffic got uh, heavier and heavier um, as they progressed in the tournament. And, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's as big a Yale athletic you know, God bless fencing, but you know, if we're if we're talking, as you say, sort of major mainstream college sports, that's that's about as big a uh, a Yale sports moment as I certainly can remember in twenty years or whatever. Yeah, and I, I think the way that athletics are now, and, and some of the things, it, I don't see an opportunity for a bigger one. I mean, I think at Yale, this is about as big as it can get. I I think I think this is. I mean, unless they could win the NCAA basketball tournament, which seems impossible. But I mean, they don't compete Division One in, in football, and I, I don't know this. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at, at some level, the dirty secret here is that it's all about the admissions office, mm-hmm. and you know, if, if Harvard wants to, just hypothetically, of course, if Harvard wanted to reduce their admission standards or let in a couple of borderline cases that could have a really helpful impact on uh, their basketball team. Again, just hypothesizing here. Um, you know, it, it, a, lot, a lot of this just comes down to whether the admissions office plays ball and whether they'll, you know, how, how many standard deviations they'll, they'll let the, uh, the, the policies drop to get in athletes. So, I mean, if, you know, if, if the admissions office suddenly said, yeah, we'll take any basketball player that scores 11 and a half on the SAT, they could contend for a national championship. But as, as, the game is being played now, you know, they're, they're lucky to play 500 ball in the Ivy League. Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, I don't know really about any of the programs at Yale, but the hockey program, but when I see the numbers, when I see like 30,000 applications and an undergraduate class of 1,991 will be entering Yale next year, you know, and I think about how that how competitive that is, you know, I think, well, you know, how do you compete athletically at all but then when I get to meet the kids who play on the hockey team, you know, obviously having a brother on it, you know, say, it, you're going to disclose your uh, connection here at some point, right? Yeah. My, well, I don't, it's okay. no secret. I, I mean, to anyone who listens to us, it's no right. secret. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, there's a kid on the team who's like a biochemist engineer major, and he actually scored the first goal in the national championship game. So we're not talking about a scrub or anything. You know, I mean, these kids are all the, the kids I meet. I mean, the, they they rem- they all remind me of Yale students. They don't remind me of kids that are gifts from the admissions office in a way. So I, I and I'm, yeah, right. no, that's what, know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, so I, it's it's I guess it makes it all that more incredible. But um, yeah, definitely a, a major high, and and it, it's going to turn into probably a running joke on the show about you know how many consecutive weeks can I work. My brother winning the national championship into the into the podcast. Yeah, so it's three in a row. So we'll see how we how we <laughs> <next> week. <laughs> but uh, we're interested in you as well. Uh, last time we talked, 
there was a, a big change going on. You were doing some more non-writing, doing some administration at SI. How have things settled in? You know, I know you're still focusing on tennis mostly. Is that kind of what you're primarily focusing on these days? Covering tennis? Or are you kind of doing a little bit of both things? Or how has it been for you the last few months at SI since we talked last? Um, I can't remember when we talked last. No, it's all it's all good. I'm uh, I guess my my title is executive editor, and I'm sort of doing half. You know, I'm still still trying to stay in the writing game and doing half. Uh, you know, doing doing writing and then administrative stuff. So you know, like two weeks ago, I was in L.A. doing Jason Collins' work, and last week I was in the office doing more conventional sort of management. It's all good. It's all good. No so, complaints. So no, one's, no one's breaking rocks here. We're talking to the executive editor at SI. That feels prestig- you know that, prestigious you? in some way. Yeah, because you no, know last I'm, time... I don't go in for this title stuff, but <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it's been fun. So um, I wanted to talk to you about a really interesting thing that kind of popped up in your writing duties. Um, and, and when I read it, it made me think, well, we got to get him on because I got to brag to him about Yale anyway. Um, was the whole... Uh, Williams' sister's father and the kind of uh, stir that he caused um, uh, talking about Serena and um, her relationship with Sloan Stevens and uh, an ESPN Magazine story. And can you kind of like go into that a little bit and talk to us a little bit about what you wrote and what your opinion was on the whole storm that came out of that? Yeah, I I still don't entirely know what brought this on. I mean, Serena Williams, uh, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, the single greatest female player ever. Um, and then Sloan Stevens is this up-and-coming player. They both happen to be African-American. I think everybody kind of went with this assumption that, oh, they must be, you know, mentor-protege. Sloan Stevens must have been inspired by the Williams sisters. They must be, you know, role models and... You know, the, the truth is that relationship doesn't exist. Doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's just I think everybody just kind of made this assumption that wasn't there. And um, Sloan Stevens sort of popped up. I mean, I think I think if if you're around tennis, you sort of knew this had been this had been mythologized. It was a little artificial, but this in this ESPN story, Sloan Stevens basically uh, you know took took some fairly fairly significant digs at Serena Williams and she's a phony and she ever since I beat her in Australia she doesn't say hi to me and um you know I mean she's she's entitled to go at Serena Williams she doesn't have to like her but um I can't I can't remember how I wrote it but basically I, I thought it was a little petty if you're going to go at Serena Williams you got to you know you that's that's a pretty significant athlete you're taking down you, you can't just go at her because she unfollowed you on Twitter and took you off her Blackberry messenger so uh, Serena's responded by taking the high road and uh, is probably the better for it. Well, you know, I wonder what your opinion is about, you know, the assumption of mentoring and if there is any responsibility there. It's almost like you talked a little bit about Jason Collins, and I wonder maybe what his responsibility uh, might be going forward now, you know, to other athletes who might want to be, uh, might want to get this off their chest in the way that he did. Um, what do you think as far as, you know, it's like Tiger Woods, maybe what is his responsibility? I don't know the answer. I'm just asking when someone is in a position of sports that's unique like this, do they have a responsibility when the next great 
person that fits into their category comes around to kind of help them? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's situational. I mean, I think t- tennis is a little different in that, you know, Sloane Stevens is not Serena Williams' teammate. She's her competition. You know, she's her adversary. She's the person who wants to beat her. It's an individual sport. On the other hand, you know, a main. I was just I was just writing about this for tomorrow, actually. Like a main, a main component of the whole Williams story is that as African-Americans, when they first came on, they weren't received particularly well by the establishment. They felt like outsiders. I don't know. You, you might think that when the next African-American female comes on tour, the Williams would want to do everything in their power to enable her to avoid the outsider feeling they had. So I don't think they're obligated. I don't think Serena, you know, I, I, I think this one's on Sloan. I mean, I don't think it's my, you, you got to side with Serena on this one, but it, it is a little weird that, Serena hasn't been a little bit more of a, a mentor, just sort of given what she had to deal with, and e- even leaving race out of it. You'd think there's a young, talented American player. I may go out of my way to show her the ropes a little bit. So, you know, as for Jason Collins, he's been, um, you know, one of the things that made that such a hardening story, and, and you know, so happy to get to work with him is he's he's ready. I mean, he's he's ready to have a conversation. I know Robbie Rogers called him you know, very early last week after Jason came out. I know that he's really going to take that role on as, as mentor and someone who can, can help other athletes. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there are different, different situations call for different relationships. Um, but uh, I, I do think, you know, Jason Collins, Jason Collins didn't just make this announcement and said, Hey, refer to my statement and I'm not done doing interviews. I and mean, I think in the next, he's doing Kimmel, on Wednesday night, I mean, I think I think Jason Collins is not going to be at every ribbon covering ceremony, but he's also going to remain prominent and vocal on, on this issue. And uh, he seems to be striking a really nice balance between, look, I don't want to just be the activist here, but at the same time, I realize what comes with this announcement, and I'm willing to kind of handle whatever comes my way. You know, when we talked about Jason Collins on the podcast last week, one thing that we were kind of unable to figure out you know, I don't claim to be a, a pro scout at the NBA level. Probably the NBA is a sport I, ne- I know the least about. But I, I have heard through reading uh, the, the article in Sports Illustrated and listening to people talk about this, that Jason Collins is, is very near the end of his career, that he's about a 12th man at this point. What we were trying to wonder is when it comes to next year and he's looking for a team, is what do you think is more likely? Do you think it's going to be that there's going to be a situation where a team is going to sign their 12th man and they have Jason Collins and then they have player B who is exactly like Jason Collins. So they say to themselves, well, you know what? We don't want the circus that's going to come with Jason Collins. So we're going to sign player B instead. Like, do you envision a scenario like that? Or do you think that there's going to be a team that's going to say, you know what? We want to sign Jason Collins because we want to be the Brooklyn Dodgers in this Jackie Robinson type story when it's told 40 years from now, or how do you think this plays out? Do you think this is a guy who's going to put himself in a, in a place where it's going to be tough to find work or easier or, or what, or doesn't matter? I don't know. No, I, I, I mean, I honestly, I think there's no way Jason Collins provided he still wants to, doesn't play in the NBA Okay, next year. I mean, there's, there's just the, the NBA. I, I mean, first of all, I think he can play. I mean, the, you know, the guy was, playing in an NBA game two and a half weeks ago. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, the skills are there. He's, a, you know, he's basically one of these kind of half player, half coaches 
type roles. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, a, a Kurt Thomas or Jawan Howard type role. But I also think that the NBA is image conscious. They're public relations savvy. And the optics of a player playing in year X, coming out to all this great reception and support, and then not finding himself on a roster in season X plus one is um, not likely to happen. But, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I still think this is a basketball decision. And honestly, I think, naive as this will sound, if Jason Collins had never come out, I still think his skills and assets and character are, are good enough so that he would have ended up on a roster. So I, I don't think this is – I don't think it's going to be – I think he'll play, and I don't think the team that signs him is going to do it because it's a public relations ploy. I think the team that signs him is going to want a backup center who's 34 years old and is a good dude and can – teach younger kids and take six fouls a game. And I, I, I think that I – don't, I don't think there are teams that had no interest in him a week ago that are now tripping over themselves to sign him. But I also don't think there are any teams that were interested and are, are scared off. Does that surprise you at all that, you know, this – I mean, this made a huge ripple in the sense that, okay, we've been – it's almost like we've been waiting for this to happen for a while now. Like it's been like bubbling under the surface you know, like I think just before Jason Collins came out, there was a rumor that there might be some NFL players that might be ready to come out. And then it seemed like when it happened, I th- the only person I can remember kind of sticking their foot in their mouth was Mike Wallace, um, wide receiver now for the Dolphins, right? I think he's the only one that I remember who said anything. I've, there was a lot of almost indifference towards it in a sense. Like, oh, okay, well, we figured. Good for him, kind of. Almost, I don't know, did it? At SI and kind of being the ones who, who broke the story, you know, having the cover story, were you surprised by the response in any way? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought it would be a big story. I didn't think it would be quite – I mean, I didn't think I would text Jason Collins on Monday and say, how are you holding up? And he says, I haven't had lunch yet, but I've heard from the president, Bill Clinton and Oprah. Huh. Um But, no, I mean, I, honestly, I thought the Mike Wallace – I thought that was really an interesting part of the story. Because, um, you know, Mike, Mike Wallace was, I mean, you, you cited him and he, he got crushed on social media and he had this tweet that basically said something to the effect of like, I can't figure out why a dude would want to get with a dude when there's so many pretty women out right. there. Right. Yep. And, you know, is, is that a smart thing to say? Is that make him sound like an intelligent, thoughtful guy? Is that well considered? No. But on, on the continuum of homophobia and like horrible things that people have heard through the years fairly mild statement and and yet he was absolutely just crushed for that remark and i i was thinking at the time like we've come a long way when a comment like that i mean you know he backtracked and the dolphins had a statement and he apologized uh, you know as, as he should have but given some of the homophobia that that sort of i've heard in my lifetime a guy saying, I don't understand to get with a pretty girl, pr- pretty mild. And yet we're at a point where that's really not an acceptable thing to say. And t- to me, that was one of these sort of interesting angles to this is just how far we've come in a pretty short amount of time. But um, uh, no, I, I think it was, I, I think it's at some level it was surprising just how big a story this, this came. I mean, this, this became in part because, you know, Jason Collins is not, a superstar. Jason Collins is not 22. He's 34. Um, but I also have to say the the um, 
any sort of negative backlash was pretty minimal and pretty yeah. marginalized. I mean, it wasn't just the Kobe's and the Steve Nash's and the Rock and the Red Sox. It was just, you know, I mean, I, I got a lot of these emails myself of just e- everyday people who were really moved and excited by this. This clearly was something that a huge segment of the population, millions of people had been waiting for. And when it happened, there was a lot, you know, there were, there were a lot of happy people out there. So, um, it was, you know, well, we'll see what happens now when, when he plays. I mean, the next chapter is obviously what's going to happen when he's in, in uniform, but, um, no, for now, I mean, he's, it's, he's, he's, on, again, on Jimmy Kimmel tomorrow, and it's, it's his life's really been changed in the last week. So what is your life uh, hold here in the summer? Do we have a scorecasting two update? You heading to France in a couple weeks? What's uh, what's the summer look like for John Wertheim? Uh, what is the summer? Yeah, I'm going to France. I'm doing some, some tennis channel work in France and Wimbledon, and at some point there will be a scorecasting two. We're my co-conspirator and I are busier than we'd like to be, but um, at, at some point we're going to get around to this thing. Yeah, we still got a, a while yet, though. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I'm looking forward to, really looking forward to, is uh, a few books. S.L. Price's book uh, about football and Al Quippa. I yeah, think right. That's right, going right. to be coming soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And Jeff Perlman has another book coming out. He's a former SI guy. He still writes occasionally on the website, I think. Looking forward oh, to yeah. his his book. And the Lakers. Yeah, and the Lakers. You know, did we re- reveal a top secret there? I mean, I knew it was about the Lakers, but no, I, I don't know. Right. Should we cut that, you think? Nah, no. no. We'll leave it. Okay, we'll Jeff, leave it. Jeff will understand. All right. Um, well, thank you for being on the show today. Um, we really appreciate it. I don't know. Maybe yours. now that you say that. Let's cut that. Let's cut that. Right. Maybe I wasn't supposed to say that. I got in trouble last time. I got to watch what I say on the show. Yeah, I know. I don't know okay. why we, we get you on, and the next thing you know, uh, Ed Sherman's writing about, about it. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. good for you for getting on Ed Sherman's radar. Yeah. You know, Ed Sherman wrote about me being sick, even, which was kind of. Oh, really? Yeah, it was kind of flattering. When we came back, he wrote, you know, a little bit of. He sent me a, a note and said, you know, ho, you know, he had been following on Twitter. I guess I had posted a few times, you know. Okay. Getting ready for surgery, that kind of thing, and then yeah. when I was like, yeah. you know, yeah, so yeah, you know, hey, how about that? So, but uh, yeah, I'll I'll cut that, and and then when people are listening back, they'll be like, what were they talking about? Did they cut? You know, exactly. So it'll be like a mystery, and it'll be only between us. But uh, thank you for being on the show today, and we'll catch up with you. Oh, I know. Now that you're kind of in management, what can I do to file a complaint about Deitch? What's what's the nature of your? Uh... Well, nature of your concern. Uh, he comes on with us all the time, you know, but then he just he, he picks on us the whole time. You know what I mean? What like, do you mean? He, he's a, he's, he busts our balls. He, like, you know, he, he, he hurts our feelings. In a way. I'm, I'm completely kidding. We love, we love Richard Deitch. He just, you know, the, rep, the, rep, the, the back and forth that we have with each other is different than the one that we have. It's more of a, you know, he makes fun of us for loving Lee Jenkins, you know? But, but I think it's like really a deep seated that he wants to be the one we love the most, not Lee. You know what I mean? So he picks it up uh, that way. You know, see what I'm saying? The uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll follow up on that one. Okay. Well, we'll maybe yeah, maybe next time I'll see. I'll let you know how our next uh, our next here. discussion with him goes. Yeah. But all right. Thanks a lot for joining us today. And oh, you can find uh, John Wertheim on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. Two weeks. You said Tennis Channel. You'll be on for for. Um, Paris and uh, writing on SI.com. That's depressing. Yeah, two weeks, you're right. Yeah, 13. I'm looking at the website. 13 days, 14 hours, and 47 minutes. 
I Ooh. like that. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Go yell. All right. Take care. All right. Talk very to you good. soon. All right. Thanks to the guests today, John Wertheim, Taz Mellis, and Greg Wyshynski, the Puck Daddy. Um, it'd be interesting to see what people think about us going interview to interview there without us yapping in between. Yeah. You know, Dave's always told us to try to be a little tighter with our shows, and we've always kind of, like, that's the one piece of advice we probably really never, we've always kind of ignored. Right. Not being tighter and maybe not putting enough of our personalities into the show. It's just right. something we're trying to change with one last thing as opposed to just boringly picking games. Right. But, uh, yeah, again, thanks to Wertheim, uh, Mellis, and the Puck Daddy. Remember, next week we're going to have Chris Ballard and Pablo Astore on the show. Um, also, you can follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, www.sports-casters.com. Um, one last thing for me today. I mentioned last week how excited I was about the news that my favorite network show, Parenthood, would be renewed for a fifth season. And, you know, I would have been able to, if it wasn't renewed, walked away with the sense of knowing that at least it got four good years in. It doesn't look like I'm going to get that opportunity with one of my other favorite network shows, and that's a new show on CBS this year called Vegas, which I might have mentioned in my Parenthood rant last week. But Vegas started really well and then kind of fizzled out and got moved to Fridays. And I remember saying this, so I didn't mention it last week. But it looks like that show is going to be canceled. And Miss hmm. Caster and I were talking about how how many years in a row do you invest yourself into a show to watch it and have it canceled? Is there a point that in this age of Netflix and how fun it is to binge watch TV shows where you almost shouldn't even bother? This is a question. almost a direct question for you, Don. And, okay. and listeners can respond to it. Should you bother – with a new show, or should you just wait until the show has enough episodes to make it worthwhile? I'll say that of the shows I've watched from episode one to the end, I would say 90% of them have been shows that I did not watch from the beginning, that I caught up on one way or another. And actually, the few shows that I watched right from the beginning, uh, some of them I'm not as proud of as others, but I used to watch Grey's Anatomy and uh, what's the one? Desperate Housewives with my wife. And you said Heroes, you watched from Heroes. kind of beginning time, right? I ended up dropping on all of those yeah. because they just got, got ridiculous. ridiculous. So, to some extent, if you really want to get something out of your investment, you wait three years. And if people are still pumped about it, maybe you jump in then catch up over a couple weekends or whatever. And, and I don't know why it seems like these shows I'm attracted to, they never kind of take. Ed was one that we were kind Ed, of in on. Yeah, yeah, Chuck is one I remember being kind of into that was never huge. The nice thing about Ed was that they got a chance to end. You right, know what they I knew mean? it was the end. They knew it was the end, and that's also with Breaking Bad and Sopranos. There's nothing better than a show knowing they're going to end. The Wire was this way, and the show kind of closing up. But it's a shame to lose a show, and I'm kind of to the point where I don't want to invest yeah. anymore until a show has its body of work established. Yeah, I'd lose dork credit if we didn't mention Firefly as shows that were canceled too soon if you haven't watched it. If you have watched it, then you know you probably already love it. 
All right, one last thing for me this week, and I probably ask for your help on this one too. We typically kind of streamline our thoughts at the end here, but I'm going to be all over the place with this. But Brendan Shanahan is one of two things, and neither of them are very flattering. He's either A, terrible at his job, or B, just a total puppet. Uh, it's impossible to determine what type of suspensions or lack thereof are going to be handed out in the NHL. And there's actually a pretty cool website called NHLWheelOfJustice.com where you can put in different scenarios and it spins a wheel and it tells you how many games will be suspended. But let me read you Rule 48. That's the one, the tricky one, the one that comes up all the time. Illegal check to the head. 48.1, a hit resulting in contact with an opponent's head where the head is targeted and the principal point of contact contact is not permitted. Okay, that's plain enough. This is the part where it gets gray. However, in determining whether such a hit should have been permitted, the circumstances of the hit, including whether the opponent put himself in a vulnerable position immediately prior to or simultaneously with the hit or the head contact on an otherwise legal body check was avoidable, can be considered. So that'd be like the player turning maybe at the last a, second or something? Or, or yeah, sure. Or here's the thing with this. And like I said, ducking. I'm going to be all over the place. But Eric Griba, if I'm saying his name right, got suspended for a hit that looked a lot to me like the Brian Campbell hit. He just went to hit a guy who happened to have his head down, and the guy basically ran his head into Griba's chest. That was called for a two-game suspension. Right. Renee Bork pretty blatantly goes elbow first into Corey Conacher's face and doesn't even get a hearing. Like, this wasn't even considered for a suspension. Same with Rick Nash earlier in the season through a pretty obvious headshot. Dustin Brown, he did get suspended for his hit on Pommonville, who still isn't back, but it was a blatant shot to the head, and Dustin Brown got two games. If you really want to take these out, what is... Now, Dustin Brown didn't doesn't know if they're going to run into Minnesota in the playoffs, but what stops a player <clears throat> like Dustin Brown from throwing a headshot at someone from St. Louis, Bacchus, or somebody like that? So if he's going to go out two games, I mean, that's, in, these are regular season hits where it should be even more severe, I would argue. And it seems like this is so much based on whether or not the player gets up. Yes. You knew that there was going to be a suspension in the Ottawa-Montreal hit because the guy was laying in a puddle of his own blood, and right. it looked disgusting. You know what? I actually wrote that. Like I wrote a couple notes, and I said, he's suspending results, not actions. And right. That's I agree. the absolute worst thing he could possibly be doing right now. I like that he comes out and he explains his suspensions. I like that, that about it, the videos. Right. There's always a video, regardless of how controversial the decision is. But, again, it's... Close your eyes and throw a dart, and you will might get the suspension right. And if we're confused, the players are confused. Absolutely. But there should be no confusion about targeting a guy's head. Well, but, and isn't there another gray area where if the hit is directed at another part of the body and contact is made? Well, right. I think that's what they're saying. Okay, when, yeah, at the hip first, but then you, you end up hitting him in the head. The shoulder okay. deflects into a right. head or something. That's I'm actually okay with that, but in the case of... Uh, Justin Ablicator, who did get suspended, he almost leaps to hit Tony Lubman, who's probably done for the series. Uh, and Ablicator gets two games, which it's nothing. I mean, it, I guess percentage-wise in the playoffs, I, I almost think they shouldn't matter. If you're going to suspend a guy for 20 games in the regular season, suspend him for 20 games in the playoffs. That would end it. Now, I'm going to end by saying this. Uh, that Montreal-Ottawa series is the most entertaining series out there probably right now because of the scumminess. And I don't, I, I want to say I don't like it, but it's going to make me watch too. So maybe I'm just a big hypocrite, but 
something has to be done with the lack of consistency. Yeah.